Super Talk Mississippi media production. Have you been seriously injured? Mama Justice is here for you. Our medical team partners with top-notch doctors, surgeons, therapists, and urologists, ensuring a comprehensive recovery journey. If you've been injured, call Mama Justice today. We're here for you. Howdy, howdy. It's Rhino here, and I wanted to say thank you for listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Get ready, get ready to go beyond the headlines and join a meaningful conversation with people from around the state. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Midday Super Talk Mississippi. I'm your host, Gerard Gibbert, along with Rhino in the Element Well Studio, guiding you through the middle of your day with facts, fodder, and fine music on this hump day. Last one before Christmas. Not quite the last one of the year. Got one more left. <laughs> but the last old hump day before we coast into Christmas. Next Monday, exciting time indeed here in the Magnolia State, in the country and across the globe as we celebrate the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ coming up next Monday. We're here again in the Element Well Studio at 10, oh, pardon me, 1105. It is 1005 at 1105. We got Danny Brunt, Rolling Fork Disaster Relief Chair, and Reed Carter the president of the Rolling Fork Rotary Club. They'll give us an update on their efforts to restore the town of Rolling Fork after the tornado that ripped through the area last year. We're looking for an update on that. Don McVeigh with the National Federation of Independent Small Businesses for Mississippi and Louisiana she is the director for the two states. She'll join us at 12.05 and give us an update on the business activity, unemployment data, what the labor situation is look like, inflation, etc. Just kind of a look back on the 2023 year and give us some guidance on what is expected in the small business community next year, 2024. Renewing yet another one right around the corner here. Looking forward to that, of course. I wanted to follow up on something that we discussed yesterday. Right at the end, there was a question about the cost of living adjustment in PERS, the Public Employees Retirement System, also known as the 13th check, more commonly. That is issued in the month of December, for those that opt a lump sum payment, retirees in the program. And the, and the question come, came up yesterday. It was actually on the show, on, on uh, Mr. Callow's show, I think right at the end, if I'm not mistaken. 
Well, somebody texted in before we got on the air. Okay, is that what it was? I yeah. knew it was before we got on the air. It wasn't while we were on the air, and I believe uh, Lance was producing at the time, and so he just called it to our attention. And I, I wanted to answer the question about what is the amount, the aggregate total amount of the cost of living adjustment in this in the in the uh, month of December, the so-called thirteenth check. And I don't have that data yet. I have um, I've got a note into our friends at PERS to to uh, see if we can get updated info. But last year, I can certainly tell you what it was last year. I don't expect it would be materially different from the prior year, honestly. Um, the, the easy way to think about this, folks, is that the total benefit payroll, which includes the, the standard service benefit, plus the cost of living adjustment, the so-called 13th check, it's about $3 billion a year. Just think about that. It's $3 billion a year. That's the total amount of benefits paid to PERS retirees. That's broken down between the service benefit, the main benefits that a retiree receives, and then the cost of living adjustment. And, of course, that adjustment increases the way the model is structured. It increases annually to each retiree. You can't necessarily say that it increases annually overall because you'd have to factor in those retirees who during the year have passed and they're no longer receiving benefits. And then, of course, you got new retirees coming in. But in general, as long as you're retired person receiving benefits, your cost of living adjustment goes up every year, according to the formula. Um, so it's broken down is the $3 billion total which, again, is comprised of both the base benefit and the cost of living adjustment, $2.1 billion is the service benefit, 830000 or so is the cost of living adjustment. So it's a 70%, 30% deal. 70% of total benefits in general are the service benefit, and 30% are the cost of living adjustment. It's another way to look at it. It's kind of a 70-30 deal. And that's been fairly steady and constant through the years. So I don't have the final data for total benefits paid in 2023, but the data I just shared is through, or for, I should say, 2022. And that's information that PERS publishes, and, and uh, so does their actuaries who do an evaluation of the system and the program overall. But I just wanted to clarify that, share that again. Um, if you didn't hear, $3 billion total, of which $2.1 billion is the service benefit, 830000 roughly is the cost of living adjustment, so-called 13th check. And to remind your listeners, this is Dave from Monticello. The, that amount of money could still be paid out regardless if it was taken as a 13th check. It's just like Social Security cost of living adjustment. I'm not following. What's 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 meant there, Rhino? You know what Dave's talking about? Not following. It is true, if this is what he's saying, that it is a PERS, like Social Security, is a defined benefit program, which means the benefits are payable until the beneficiary passes away. Now, if the beneficiary chose an option that would pay benefits upon their passing 
to a designated or designated beneficiaries, then the benefit while they're alive is reduced to cover the possibility of paying a benefit upon their passing. Now, that's an option, of course, and that's all figured in the math of the actuarial formulas to determine what your benefit should be at the point of retirement based on life expectancy and all kinds of other things. Uh, that's what actuaries do. That's the nature of actuarial science. I'm not sure exactly what Dave is saying there, but appreciate that. He clarified. He said, I'm, I'm just saying whether the money is taken in a lump sum in December oh. or if it's spread out through 12 months, right. the figure does not change. That's right. Okay, I got you. So, right, your choice is to either take it as a lump sum, uh, the cost of living adjustment, the so-called 13 check, or optionally you can receive it monthly. Now, PERS is lobbied to essentially compel all retirees to take it monthly to kind of help with their cash flow the cash flow of the system. And I think a lot of that, if you think about investing a $30 billion portfolio, which is the purse portfolio, and you look at the breakdown of how those investments are allocated, uh, a lot of that's in equities. So you end up to try to cover the cash requirement to cover, to fund the 13 check and a big old lump sum, a lot of money going out in a compressed period of time. You're trying to time, you know, the, the sale, if you may, of some of those equities to raise cash. It's a little different than fixed income interest-bearing assets. So $2.1 billion of service benefit, $830 million of the cost of living adjustment, total benefits paid, just over $3 billion. Just wanted to clarify that. Um, Donald Trump, it appears, has been uh, deemed ineligible to appear on the ballot. For in, now. For now, in the state of Colorado. If you hadn't heard the news, the Colorado St- Supreme Court disqualified the former president from appearing on the ballot. It was a narrow 4-3 ruling by the Colorado State Supreme Court. Of course, the president's attorneys are suing the state. This, I think, you could expect to be fast-tracked to the United States Supreme Court. My estimation is that the Supreme Court will find in favor of the former president and that the Supreme Court of the great state of Colorado has acted wrongly here. The situation and really their ruling is grounded in the 14th Amendment. Section 3 specifically, which disqualifies people who engage in insurrection against the Constitution after taking an oath to support it from running for public office. So, for president, actually. So, um, I don't think that Mr. Trump's actions rise to that level. He's not been convicted, certainly, of any insurrection. So, this is a... uh, This is a complex legal matter at a minimum, and we'll see where it goes. But my guess is that the Supreme Court is going to rule against the Colorado Supreme Court in their ruling. We're stepping aside for a break in the Element Well studio. Coming right back with a lot more to talk about. Stay with us. 
Gerard Gibbert. He keeps his classified documents right where they belong. Inside a Journey record jacket from the 1980s. Gerard Gibbert, Super Talk Mississippi. Middays, we're in the Element Well studio. We appreciate you joining us. So, I think they're likely to fast track this thing at the Supreme Court. This situation where the Supreme Court of Colorado has said that Donald Trump may not appear on the primary ballot. Now, the state GOP is considering. Just overhauling the process used to select a candidate from the party. They're looking at converting to a caucus approach, as opposed to a primary election. Just withdraw altogether from the primary election and shift to this caucus approach, if this ruling stands. Now, I think... It's going to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court is going to strike it down. Interestingly enough, on the 4-3 vote, all members of the Colorado Supreme Court are Democrats. That's kind of weird. So four Democrats said, kick him off the ballot, and three said, keep him on. Does this not look like election rigging, honestly? I mean, what's your problem, Colorado? You afraid maybe that uh, the former president is trouncing your candidate, your Democrat candidate, incumbent President Joe Biden, because he is. And in fact, polls even reflect that the current president is at risk in the state of Colorado, which I can't remember the last time it went for a Republican. We may have to, maybe the Bush years? Not sure. It's been a while. It... um, is often viewed as purple, but when you when it comes down to a popular vote statewide, it's a pretty tall order for a Republican, and the president is uh, in trouble. The current president versus the former president in a head-to-head match. But the GOP says, "Yep, we'll just do it through a caucus if, if this thing sticks." This is disturbing. Yeah, and here's two thousand four. Okay but would be uh, Bush's, right. Um, So, you know, the thing about it is, if this were to stand and the U.S. Supreme Court does not overturn the GOP, pardon me, the Colorado's Supreme Court's decision, you got to believe that numerous other states would follow suit that seek to ensure that 
former President Trump is not the next president. That's just... You talk about the end of democracy? A, a favorite refrain from the left? Everything, right, is the end of democracy. Showing your ID to prove you are who you are to vote. End of democracy. They do love their hyperbole. Even reasonable restrictions on abortion. End of democracy. They're literally campaigning on this idea. They really don't like the words responsibility or reasonable. <laughs> no. Or at least the true. definition that's been agreed upon for decades and eons. <laughs> that is true. Uh, it's a good point. Reasonable questioning an election? Oh, you're an insurrectionist! <laughs> that's exactly the right. Reasonable gun control to them is just take them all! That's a good point. I agree. And responsibility, um, that's not something someone should have to deal with on a personal level. Yeah. That should be government's responsibility. Right. And any sort of reasonableness with respect to something we talk about all the time, hiring, promotion, compensation. Oh, well, it's reasonable to just make those decisions purely on the basis of immutable physical characteristics such as race and gender and sexual preference and all that sort of stuff. Remember our, our new definition for the acronym DEI, Discrimination, Exclusion, and Inequity. Oh, that's reasonable though, right? Well, I think and you know what's going to happen, I believe? I think the Supreme Court strikes this thing down. It will be interesting to see how the Democrats on the Supreme Court vote. Well, that's true. Because I don't even think it's fuzzy. Great. I really don't. I don't think Mr. Trump's actions rose to the level of insurrection as envisioned when the 14th Amendment was drafted. That was really, if I'm not mistaken, to prevent true Confederate insurrectionists that did seek, in fact. I mean, it's, it's in the wording of the 14th Amendment. What's that? That you have taken an oath of office for the country and then acted in insurrection. That, that's the Confederacy. Uh, sure. I mean, I, I think any reasonable, clear-eyed person would say, yeah, that's insurrection. You were seeking to secede and form your own nation inside the borders to detach. That's not what was going on here. There were people, I don't necessarily agree with the approach, but there were people who felt like that something happened in the, the 2020 election and they were seeking to redress their government. And they know that the, uh, that the power exist inside that capital. I mean, that's that's fair game. Now, when you start destroying property and hurting people and things like that, that's a problem. Disrupting. But the general protests and, again, seeking answers and redressing government, that that's, that's absolutely consistent with our traditions and our laws. I frankly don't think Donald Trump was uh, responsible for that. There are a lot of people on the left that do. I, 
In fact, he, well, remember those are the same people that claimed the BLM rioting was mostly peaceful protests, right? With fifty-foot flames in the background in the video, and people pillaging. It gets increasingly more and more difficult every single day to take anybody that's a liberal or a Democrat seriously. It it is. I agree, and it's it's become so highly politicized that we seem to just abandon common sense and objectivity. That's the main thing to me is there's no more objectivity. I mean, the whole DEI movement essentially is subjective, displacing objective reasoning completely. It's Michelle Wu, the mayor of Boston, having her little private party for electeds of color. It's the presidents up on the hill two weeks ago of the Ivy League schools and MIT up there saying that, well, you have to contextualize this anti-Semitism stuff. Even if they're out destroying property and obstructing Jewish students from going about their business and calling for extermination, well, it doesn't really violate the code of contact. It depends on the conduct. It depends on the context. The context they're talking about is the checklist of whether or not you have more intersectionality points than the person talking. That's true. That's how stupid their entire ideology is. <laughs> that's true. Oh, gosh. Well, uh, I think that's what's going to happen. I really do. Trump even said to have a peaceful protest, says Jerry Clark of Clark Construction. Now, many say that the former president should have been a little bit more forceful and should have called for those who uh, invaded the Capitol uh, to stand down. Maybe. I'd have to think about that. I, again, I don't condone the, those activities. I don't think that was necessarily the proper approach when it comes to disrupting the activities in that building and any sort of rifling through personal effects and any damage to property or harm to others. Yeah, that's never the right approach. I don't care what the cause is, in my view. Uh, but I think it's grossly overblown, honestly, and I think Trump's involvement in it is also grossly overblown. But man, they're milking it for all it's worth, and and they're they've weaponized it to the point where now they're essentially, effectively rigging an election. Well, that's one of my favorite Christmas tunes right there, Alabama Christmas in Dixie. Appreciate that, Rhino. We're coming right back with more in the Element Well Studio. Covering the stories that matter most to Mississippians. Gerard Gibbert. Middays with Gerard. Super Talk Mississippi. Do you hear what 
Welcome back, everyone. It is a midday Super Talk Mississippi. We appreciate you once again joining us today. We got some questions here, uh, Rhino, on uh, PERS that I'll try to answer. You know, every time I bring that subject up, we always get lots of questions, and that's great. It's a subject that needs to be discussed. Um, I am more than confident, honestly, that our legislature is going to place PERS up on the list as a top priority to address, because they know that something's got to be done. Now, I don't want people out there thinking, Gerard said that our checks are going to change next month. No, no, no. The, the system is fine for now. It can accommodate and fulfill its financial obligations. But you've got to plan these things on a long-term basis. And on a long-term basis, the program is facing economic headwinds. The legislature knows it. Many members do. The board knows it. It's not a secret. And the longer you wait to take action, the more severe might that action be. And so addressing it now and stabilizing the fund is the prudent thing, the thoughtful thing to do. There's no doubt about that. So I just wanted to point that out. Ben from Madison says, how much did the Board of PERS request the legislature for in terms of an infusion of just cash to um, stabilize the fund? Lots of things have been tossed around there, Ben. Um, you know, I've, I've seen it it kind of range, but $250, $300 million a year, right, you said for 25 years, it's kind of in that that um, that range of years, and that, of course, it really depends on how much the increase in the employer rate uh, is done there. That has been suggested at 2% per year until what's called the actuarial determined contribution rate is attained. And the actuaries are essentially informing that the employer contribution rate needs to increase by a total of 10%, so 2% per year over five years. That cost to the taxpayers, since the taxpayers are responsible for the employer contribution to PERS because their employees of public sector entities, thus their pay is funded by by taxing uh, revenue, be it at the state level, the municipal, or the county, or the school district, which are the participants in the PERS system. Uh, that would cost about $700 million a year. $700 million a year, once the total 10% is implemented. That's a lot. So there's a combination of that and some cash infusion likely, a couple hundred million, 250 million or so a year for several years from the legislature is likely what I see happening. I talk about this in the article. I think you're going to see a a, uh, a combination solution, if you will, 
not just one single action, but several actions. I think you'll also likely see the creation of a new tier, would be Tier 5, just means that all new workers that um, enter the system at any of those levels would be subject to a a completely different uh, model in terms of contributions and benefits, a more sustainable model than than the present one. But that would apply again to new employees and not existing. I've not heard anyone, including me, who has called for any material change to existing benefits. And uh, certainly for those presently receiving checks, or a um, any change for those uh, approaching retirement. And in fact, in accordance to, with uh, info I received about an attorney general's opinion related to increasing the employee's contribution, I'm told that such action that is an increase in the employee share would require a commensurate adjustment of benefits. So you're really not gaining any ground by doing that. It's just something to uh, to be aware of there. But appreciate the question there. Someone did say, um, let's see, uh, I'm looking for the question about the 13th check here, Rhino. Oh, here we go. The 13th check earns interest, doesn't it? Well, the check doesn't earn interest. That's an expense. If you're talking about the money necessary, the cash, to fund that one-time-a-year payment, well, that money is invested in a variety of securities. It's not just in interest-bearing instruments. In fact, the majority of it, the last portfolio I looked at, analysis, the allocation, was in equities. So you're investing in equities to receive dividends and also to to just produce returns on those equities, just to see those equities grow in value. And, they, and, and there are third parties who manage that $30 billion portfolio, and they're buying and selling equities. It's, it's Honestly, it's no different than what our sponsor of this studio does, Element Wealth. That's what wealth managers do. They allocate cash, capital, across a, a spectrum of assets to comprise a, a portfolio, and they're the ones that determine how it should be weighted. Uh, equities, uh, interest-bearing instruments such as uh, government bonds, could be corporate bonds, corporate uh, grade bonds, um, municipal bonds, U.S. Treasury bonds. You know, there's just a large, um, I guess, range of securities to choose from, and that's what wealth managers do. Their job is to produce a return and to deploy that money into various investments to do so. So, I mean, you could say, sure, that... Or are they saying that the 13th check increases every year? Okay, I'm not sure uh, from the question, honestly. But okay, it does, and that's what we said in the last segment. And that's and that's based on uh, just the calculation. The calculation is um, the years of retirement uh, certain years of retirement for a person. I think it's all years before the age of 60. I'm trying to recall the, the calculation of the 13th check. You retire before the age of 60. The years you're in the system as a retiree before the age of 60, it's your base 
service retirement times 3% for each year of retirement between the, the year you started and the age of 60. After the age of 60, then it's compounded at 3% per year. That's where it gets kind of expensive and honestly exceeds what a cost of living adjustment would look like were it tied to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, and the most typical one, the way Social Security does it, is it ties cost of living adjustments to the CPIX. There, there are multiple. To make it even more complicated, there are multiple Consumer Price Index comp- computations, just depending on the, uh, the model, the formula there. Let's see, uh, someone said, uh, if I can find it here, why can't we just get rid of PERS? Well, I'm sure that um, the legislature could pass a law. I don't think such a bill has a chance to essentially terminate PERS or convert it or do anything of the above, but you get into some really sticky legal matters there where if such were to happen or any, I think, even significant adjustment to the program that would reduce benefits for current retirees or those certainly that have paid in through the years, you'd end up in court, and I would say that the members of PERS would ultimately own the state of Mississippi in such a lawsuit. So that's not practical, not going to happen, and not, I don't think, in the best interest of the state. The, the public employees' retirement system, and this is the case in public sector across the country, has always been considered a, kind of an offsetting benefit to attract workers into government because, in general, they're receiving pay, their base pay, their compensation, their salary is uh, typically less than what they could earn in the private sector. And, and one of the ways the public sector is able to attract and retain employees for those jobs is because they have this, this special uh, benefit. It's, and it's a uh, defined benefit program, which is what PERS is, for life. It exists in virtually, I think, every state. I don't think a single state doesn't have such a defined benefit program. We're coming right back in the Element Well studio. We're going to talk about the Rolling Fork disaster relief at 1105. Is with Gerard. Good for America. Good for fans of justice and truth. Good for us. Super Talk Mississippi. This is what we stand for. I really can't But stay. baby, it's cold outside. I've got to go away. Boy, they ain't going to cancel us for that one, are they? They can try. (laughs) So let me clarify. Um, Got the data just a little bit wrong. It's 3% of your annual base benefit for each year of retirement prior to reaching age 55. So if you retire before age 55 there. Uh, that's for the first three tiers, and then in Tier 4, it's the age of 60. And then after that is uh, when it is compounded. So, for example, if you're in Tier 4 and you retire at the, uh, you retire at the age of, let's say, 52, you got sufficient number of years, you're fully vested, you retire, 
So for eight years of retirement, it's 3% of each year, 3% times your base benefit times eight, essentially. And then after that, it's compounded. If you're retired and you're receiving benefits, and let's say you're 65, for example. So eight years, 3%, simple interest, and then five years compounded. It's the way it works. Uh, I also did a quick check on the the latest asset allocation is published by PERS. And U.S. equities, non-U.S. equities, global equities, so investments in equities. That's just stock. That amounts to about 58% of the total portfolio. Real estate is roughly 10. Fixed income securities, again, those would be bonds. Could be corporate bonds or, or public sector bonds. That's uh, 18% change. I didn't mention this, but could have investments in funds operated by private equity firms. Those are typically more risky, but pay a higher return, and thus it comprises a lower percentage of the total amount of assets allocated of the purse fund, 12.59% in private equity, and then 0.71% on the sidelines in cash. So the bottom line is almost 60% of the portfolio is in stocks. And then the other 40% is split between real estate, bonds, private equity, and a little dab of cash. Just to anybody's interested in that, that's what it works out. What would an average 13th check look like, uh, says uh, Mailman Clayton. You know, there, there actually is uh, some data on that. There, mailman Clayton, and the um, let's see, I'm looking at it right now. I, I can o- I only see the uh, average total monthly benefit. That's two thousand one hundred and eighty-eight dollars. So you'd have to take the total paid eight hundred the eight hundred thirty million and divide it by the total number of retirees, which I think Rhino, if I'm not mistaken is 114,000 that are drawing benefits out of the system. I need to check that to make sure before I stamp that as as uh, accurate. But I, I'll look that up for you on the break there, mailman. Appreciate that. On the C Spire text line, mine this year was 7K. I'm assuming that was the 13th check. So, and, and honestly... Mailman, I, I don't think I could calculate for you the 13th check. What I could calculate, because everybody doesn't take it as a lump sum, what I could calculate is um, the total, or the average, I should say, cost of living adjustment. But in general, to a retiree, if you look at that average monthly benefit of $2,188 dollars, you could average that out at about, again, 30% of that being a cost of living adjustment. So $600 and change, essentially. Yeah, the latest number I got is as of June 2022. The total number of PERS retirees is 114,462. Okay, so I had that number right. So it's $825 million divided by 114,000. And I think you're going to see that's going to work out to about the figure I just shared. But yeah, I get it. It's um it's something we gotta deal with. 
Like marrying an ugly woman with a rich daddy playing the long game, says Thomas and Greenwood. Okay. Wonder why Mike Ezel was one of 19 Republicans to vote with Democrats not to impeach Mayorkas, says Derek and Greenwood. I, I wasn't aware of that vote. Uh, might have to look into that. Not really sure. Do you think slurp and troopers need changes? Those programs don't seem to be on quite as unstable a financial footing, this is Dave and Monticello, as uh, overall the big PERS program does. Haven't really focused a lot on that, Dave. That's just just kind of eyeballing it, is what I'd say. Let's see here. Anything else? Trump hasn't been convicted yet, says Bo in Oxford. Yeah, we were talking about that. Agree, but... Keep this in mind, Bo, that is, that is actually not a requirement. I'm not saying it's, it's not a, a reasonable sort of, of a predicate, but it's not actually a requirement under the 14th Amendment. And I'll later on in the program, I'll actually read that. We're coming right back with Danny Brunt and Reed Carter from Rolling Fork talking about... And now... The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. That's what I like to listen to. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Here on Super Talk Mississippi. Welcome back, everyone. It is middays. We are live in the Element Well studio on this hump day. We welcome to the program now Danny Brunt, Rolling Fork Disaster Relief Chair, and Reed Carter, President of the Rolling Fork Rotary Club. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having me. You bet. So give us an update. Uh, uh, Danny, we'll start with you. Give us an update on the recovery efforts in Rolling Fork uh, first. Uh, remind our audience what happened uh, a few months ago, right? Six, seven months ago, March this year, I believe. March, uh, March twenty fourth, I believe it was of twenty three of this year. Uh, yes, we had a uh, there was a, a EF four tornado uh, in in the Rolling Fork and Silver City areas, uh, and there was uh, some three hundred homes d- either destroyed or. Uh, or damaged, there were uh, about there were 17 people that were 17 fatalities, and um, since that time, uh, th- of course, there have been many many efforts there uh, from a lot of different groups, and the response was just really overwhelming as far as I saw. But our our people, uh, Rotary was literally on the ground there within hours. Our district governor, uh, and, and just let me say this: we have a. I think each organization takes on, uh, to an extent, the personality of their leader, and we have a leader that that cares. It's really cared for people, and uh, Mark Devias and his wife Rhonda were lit, were there at, in Rolling Fork literally hours after this disaster, and started uh, putting the pieces, uh, trying to put. Uh, these people's lives back together. Yeah, absolutely. I'm. Uh, I'll share with you. I'm actually a, a member of the Rotary Club of Jackson uh, here here locally, and 
it looks like that a number of the clubs across the state have uh, joined together to help out in this effort. Is that is that correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, within, again, within days, of course, Mark was there, our, our district governor was yeah. there, and then uh, uh, shortly after that, we ha- began seeing uh, Rotary volunteers there boxing food, handing out food, uh, clothing to uh, that those recipients that, that uh, there locally. Uh, but, uh, yeah, we've had... Uh, We've had donations. We've had uh, not only from Rotarians. We had it from many Rotary clubs and individual Rotarians, but we've also had other groups uh, from across the state and out of state, uh, yeah. including Rotary International, who have uh, participated. Yeah, Reed, Reed, tell us about how Rotary is working with uh, local authorities and other organizations in this uh, relief and recovery effort. So, yes, as Danny said, um, I'll second that about Mark DiBiase, our district governor. He was uh, boots on the ground by 8 o'clock on March 25th. Yeah. And uh, from then on, just took a major role in raising funds and organizing disaster aid crews. But um, what our club has done is Danny can tell you about a lot of the projects that we've done that the donations have funded but one thing locally that we are partnering with is rolling fork rising we've been a uh, a large donor in that and what they're doing is they're putting renters back in homes i'm sure you've had them on air a few times mm-hmm. but um we've the funds have poured foundations for four homes windows for three homes trusses for another three homes and um will continue to grow, especially if funds continue to come in through donations. And uh, that organization plans to continue to build homes as long as they possibly can. I think they own 17 lots right now and 18 acres to continue building homes on. We've put on um, a number of roofs around town, uh, teamed up with different contractors. That, uh, local man Kelvin Bailey has been a staple in lining up roof projects to put on um i'm just really proud of what rotary has done for our community whether it's local um state and then rotary international i mean there's been rotary presence here since very short hours right after the storm and it uh it makes me super proud so tell us about uh it's our understanding that there is at least one of the homes right that's being built um to rotary district it's going to be recognized, is associated, and, and um, I guess completed with the support of Rotary District 6820. Is that correct? Yes. So with all of those um, foundations, windows, trusses, so those donations have basically um, provided enough funding to complete one home. And so they have dedicated a home. Um, I think it's 26 South 6th Street, if I'm correct, the address. Um but um, that will be known as the Rotary District 6820 home. Okay. And so um, cool. shortly we will be putting a sign in the yard, and uh, maybe you'll see something about that home. Gotcha. Danny, if, if folks want to help, whether they're uh, part of Rotary or not, how can they do that? Well, they can uh, send their donations to uh, 
and we can still use donations. We're uh, we've gone through, spent uh, almost a quarter of a million, well, a little over a quarter of a million dollars in Rolling Fork just with homes, with lodging. So that that can still be uh, donated to uh, uh, Rotary, uh, our Rotary Foundation at. Uh, I think it's 131 Fox Run Road in Canton is our uh, uh, is the address that the money is From sent foundation. to. So. You probably looked that up. Uh, Reed, what what kind of reaction are you getting from folks that uh, that you're helping out here with these efforts? Oh, everyone is completely blown away and thankful. Um, it, it's super encouraging to see um, the difference that we're making and uh, the lives that are being changed by by helping them out because, um, as you know, Rolling Fork is a very perverse area. And so people, people can't afford to put a new roof on. A lot of people are getting, um, you know, they're not getting full advantage out of their insurance. They don't have enough money to cover the damages on their homes. And so that's, uh, where we're helping out and it, uh, it's truly making a difference. And, um, I'm proud to see it, but yeah, we still have several more projects that we could continue to do. And so, any donations will be greatly appreciated and put to very good use. We should point out as Rotarians that uh, our motto, which has been around, I believe, since the early 1900s, service above self and one profits most who serves best, is really being exemplified here. Is it not, Reed? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. And, um, you know, from, from a local level, state level, and uh, national, you know, international, there there's been rotary presence here since 8 o'clock on March 25th, wow. and uh, it, it, it will continue, and um, we, are, we are very grateful in Rolling Fork for what Rotary has done. It's really awesome to, to get involved at, at this level, especially in this critical time of need. And, and uh, like we said, this honestly is really what Rotary is all about. It's a whole lot more than just folks getting together weekly, uh, maybe to uh, have lunch and, and hear some presentations. This is really uh, the crux and the essence of, of Rotary. Yes, absolutely. I agree with that. And... Uh, you know, I didn't realize un- until the storm. I didn't realize how big of an impact Rotary could make. You know, we're a small club in in Rolling Fork. We've got a few members, but um, we're small but mighty, and um, sure. we appreciate the help that Rotary District 6820s provided, and um, sure uh, other donors that that aren't involved in Rotary. I mean, it's uh, it, it's unbelievable the difference that Rotary's made in our community. Danny, as part of the recovery efforts, uh, what has the supply chain situation been like? Of course, you need lots of building materials, and you labor as well. Has that been hard to come by? Is it is it kind of kind of softened a bit? Well, fortunately, uh, uh, we've we have had uh, really good luck with a, uh, using a couple of local contractors who, who have done the majority of the work for us uh, in, in in Rolling Fork. Uh, yes, they have had trouble with uh, some some supply chain problems, especially with things like windows. Yeah, but that's kind of softened, and okay. it's it's uh, it's coming on around. Okay, because not only were we, you know, not only were we uh, uh, have, has Rotary provided money for this new construction, we were able to go in in the beginning and and help people put get roofs on, windows in. Uh, 
windows in almost every house over there that was damaged had to have windows and roofs. Yeah. You know? yeah. Okay. So. Well, that's good to hear that. Uh, I mean, it seems like from what I'm hearing, just in general out in, in industry, that those situations have have mostly resolved, and it's not not too terrible to to wait. And, right. and most products are available, and that's good because you got situations here where you got to do it now. I mean, they don't have, really have an alternative in many cases. Good. Danny Reed, appreciate you guys uh, coming on, and, and thank you for your efforts there and serving um, your community. It's really important to, to come to to the aid of those in, in need. Appreciate it, guys. Merry Christmas to you. Merry Christmas. We appreciate, thank we you. appreciate you. Merry Christmas. Folks, we're coming right back in the Element Well Studio. The talk that keeps Mississippi talking. We're rolling. Hit it. Go. Play it. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. The old log is burning yellow and red. Small eyes are fighting that old sleepy head. Stockings are filled While stories of goodwill Are told at the edge of the bed It's an old-time Christmas Family and friends round the tree It's an old Back in the Element Well studio, little Randy Travis there. Rhino queuing up the Christmas tunes one after another. Appreciate that, Rhino. And we appreciate the good folks from the Rotary Club, Rolling Fork, doing something to help uh, those in their community who suffered incredible losses during the spring tornadoes that swept through the Delta and particularly uh, had particular impact, should say, on Rolling Fork, Silver City as well. I remember driving up there. I can't remember. Maybe, maybe it was the remote I did um, for at, in Greenville for um, the Delta Soul Golf Classic. I think that's when I drove through the area, and that was you know a month, a couple of months after the storm swept through. And gosh, it was incredible. And you know, you could tell it's a tornado because all of a sudden everything's intact, and, and you come upon it, and you can see the path right oh, yeah. there. Just incredible. I mean, I, I know that gets repeated a lot, but when you see it, it's, it still affects you. I mean, it's, it's sensational, honestly, to view. So, But we appreciate uh, the good folks there that uh, in the Rotary for helping out, and across the state, Rotaries across the state. So back on this Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, why are we even talking about that? Because if you haven't heard, former President Donald Trump will not appear at this point on the primary ballot in the state of Colorado that after the Supreme Court of the state of Colorado on a 4-3 vote. 4-3 vote decided that the former president engaged in insurrection thus violated Section 3 of the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, and thus was ineligible, disqualified. I'll read it to you. 
No person shall hold any office, civil or military, under the United States who have previously taken an oath as an officer of the United States to support the Constitution of the United States shall have engaged in insurrection, rebellion, or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. So, I think the problem is here, Rhino, is that that's subjective. It could be. Not objective. If it said convicted of it, that would be objective. And so my concern is if, if a politicized body such as the Supreme Court of Colorado which just simply has an axe to grind, that being they don't want Donald Trump on the ballot, they don't want him to be president. It's Letitia James in New York, the Attorney General, who's drug him into court because she doesn't want him to be president. And the grounds for doing so are weak at best, honestly. And the same is, is clear here. And if we don't overturn this, I still believe this, at the Supreme Court of the United States level, then I believe other states will act and do the same. Oh, that's all we got to do is claim that Donald Trump committed insurrection, violated the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. Boom, he's disqualified. We don't have to worry about him anymore. That, my friends, is the end of democracy right there. Not showing an ID to vote. That ain't the end of democracy. Not not having restrictions against abortion. That's not the end of democracy. This would be the end of democracy, honestly. When a small group can have such a major impact on the elections process in this country. Free and fair elections. Those are the people who represent us because it is a republic form of government. We elect people to govern us. And we don't need seven people in Colorado determining that outcome. That ain't how it's supposed to work. So I'm, I'm confident. And I think, again, this will be fast-tracked. I'd be shocked if you don't see something come out of this in the next couple of days. I think they'll clear the boards for this one. Need, need to. You're, you're looking at potential irreparable harm, which always is a factor in determining, uh, and time is of the essence, determining the docket and the schedule. And this provision, by the way, was mainly used between its ratification and uh, the aftermath of the Civil War and the 1872 enactment of the Amnesty Act. And this was honestly really about preventing those who did engage in bona fide insurrection. Treason, honestly. Just couldn't be officers of the government. Okay, that makes sense. But that is not an appropriate description of Donald Trump and what happened on January 6th, in my view. I think that's going to die. In the meantime, if just as when you think you've heard all the craziness you could possibly deal with, 
Pennsylvania school board president, a brand new one, sworn in to her position just a couple of days ago. And typically, of course, when you get sworn in and you recite an oath of an office, in this case, president of the school board in the Central Bucks School District, that being in the Keystone State of Pennsylvania, you're going to place your hand on the Bible, raise your right hand, and recite the oath. Oh, but not Karen Smith. She placed her hand on a stack of controversial books, including at least one that contained sexually explicit content. This is sick. It's the left's religion. I told you. It's sex, it's climate, it's race. The civic religion. It, it absolutely is. Unbelievable. Well. The I, cult of intersectionality. It is nuts. I, I don't. I don't know. There was another one, too, by the way. The book, by the way, that included these, I think, inappropriate images and content. Flamer. This was released in 2020. It tells the story of a character who was bullied at a Boy Scout summer camp for, quote, acting in a manner considered stereotypical of gay men. The graphical novel, I'm reading the description of it, includes characters discussing pornographer, pornography, erections, masturbation, penis size, and an illustration that depicts naked teenage boys. Oh, sure, that's perfectly appropriate and normal for a, a person being sworn in as a, uh, to a school board president position to place their hand on that. Well, those are the holy texts of the loony left. It's incredible. I'm looking at the, the cover of it. I kid you not. And it's called Flamer, and it's this boy with the Boy Scout sign, three fingers held up, and it's got flames all around him, and this the words Flamer in kind of a flame style. Oh, my gosh. This uh, made the American Library Association's list as one of the most banned books in 2022, and they don't ban squat. It's been reportedly challenged in at least 62 schools for its content and sexually explicit material. Another book in the stack that Karen used to, <laughs> to swear in to her new role, Night? I'm not even familiar with that. Written by... Ellie Weasel, The Bluest Eye, written by Toni Morrison, Lily and Duncan, and another one entitled All Boys Aren't Blue. (laughs) This is incredible. I mean, it truly is. This community banded together and stood up against the hate. (laughs) Aren't these the same people that get bent out of shape because of words and Huck Finn, Tom Sawyer? That's right. To kill a mockingbird. (laughs) 
We're stepping inside for a break. It's Don McVeigh, National Federation of Independent Small Business at 12.05. Stay with us. Hey, is everybody ready? I'm ready. Ready here. Middays with Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. It's the most wonderful time of the year With the kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer It's the most wonderful time of the year It's the happiest season Well, I can still see him performing it on the old Andy Williams Christmas specials. His voice was just made to sing that song. <laughs> and he's one of the few people where if you'd never seen his face and then you saw his face and heard his voice, it's like, wow, that that really does match. Yeah, I would agree. Perry Como, too. Oh, yeah. From the same era. On the ceasefire text line, I'm talking about the old PERS 13th check, which has gone out. There is almost no way to calculate thir- 13th average because everyone is on a different year at a different age and from a different benefit. Yeah, but you still can calculate an average. And and I was right. I said that it's going to likely work out to be roughly 30% of the average total benefit, 600 bucks a month would be the 13th check component of the total average benefit of 21 uh, 88. And so, quick calculation since the 13 checks, roughly 100, uh, excuse me, 830 million total, the cost of living adjustment, not just the 13th lump sum check, but the total cost of living adjustment, because some people do receive it monthly. And you divide it by the number of retirees to compute the average. It's 7200 a year and change that works out of course to 600 a month but it it's roughly 30%. Now, it's true that when you look at the the year of retirement if you look at uh, an analysis of that and then the amount by year of retirement if you will that is service benefit versus the amount that is cost of living adjustment. Well, of course, the uh, longer a person has been retired, the more, the higher is their cost of living adjustment relative to their service benefit. And in fact, I can share with you some data for those who retired 1987 and prior. Now, that's a long time ago. That would mean they've been retired 36 years, right? They've been retired as long as my little brother's been alive, and he's a lawyer with two kids. There you go. So they've been retired probably longer than they worked. And there are 1,372 retirees as of this time last year. It may have changed some, but it's probably fairly close to that. So just for... To illustration purposes, their total service benefit was $11 million. Their total cost of living adjustment 
was 21 million. So you follow me here? They've been retired a long time. When they retired, 1987 and prior, their service benefit wouldn't have been that great, great in terms of the size of the number, uh, because of their pay leading up to that, right? Their pay for a public sector employee in 1987 and prior, considerably less than it is today, as an example. But having been retired now for such a long period of time, their service benefit, which is constant throughout their uh, retirement years, has now exceeded by their cost of living adjustment. In this case, it's double. And this is straight from PERS's information, their data. And you've got to go all the way back to retirees in 1997, those who retired now, those who entered the benefit phase of their membership, they retired from working, began receiving benefits. You got to go back to 19, those who retired in 1997, 26 years ago. That, in terms of the benefits paid in 2022, their service benefit, their cost of living adjustment, the same. So let's just say, for example, your service benefit was 10000 bucks. Your cost of living adjustment, your 13 check, also 10000 bucks. Talking about 10000 bucks a year. When you start getting more recent in time, then the numbers cross. So it's at 1997, if you're following me here, that the numbers cross such that all those who retired before 1997 have a cost of living adjustment that is greater in value than their base service benefit. Everybody who has retired since 1997 has a service benefit that is greater than their cost of living adjustment. But that's where the numbers cross, is in 1997, as of the most recent published data from the Public Employees Retirement System. Just a interesting aspect of the entire program. Mike from Madison, what he says, question whether the 14th Amendment provision applies to presidents. The amendment lists specific offices. For example, senator, representative, or congressman does not specifically mention president. That is true. It doesn't. It's one of the legal questions that the Supreme Court will have to answer. That's what they're going to have to deal with. That's exactly right. Um, and that's that's what the Supreme Court exists for, honestly, is, is to interpret such. It, uh, I, I can see, honestly, how it could go either way. I really can, but I, I, I mean, as far as them interpreting it, but at the end of the day, I just can't imagine that they're going to rule that the, uh, the former president should be disqualified for insurrection. I, I just can't. I don't see it. I really don't. Um, it does say hold any office, civil or military. So again, they'll ha- they're going to have to sort that out. I and mean, then you got like um, is stated here for Mike. Then you got these specific offices. So that's what this court's for: is to sort all that stuff out. I think they'll do the right thing, honestly. Um, but I can't find any reference to in the Constitution, in the amendment, that states that, yeah, the person must be convicted of such. I don't see that. Um, But 
I think that would potentially be a reasonable standard. Otherwise, like I said, it's just subjective. Now, it could be overturned, by the way, by the Congress with a two-thirds vote. If they're ruled ineligible, disqualified from appearing on the ballot in the Congress with a two-thirds vote, of course, that's not going to happen based on the makeup of our Congress, but it, that, that path is available. That tool is available. It'll be, it'll be interesting to see how all that sorts out. You also have to pay federal taxes out of the 13th check. Well, sure. I mean, it's just income. Uh, no state income taxes, as you may recall from our lengthy discussions about tax reform in the state. Retirement income is expressly exempt in the state of Mississippi from state income taxes. State income taxes. So Social Security, 401k income... Uh, public pension income, any pensions like that? Yep, absolutely. By the way, breaking news, President Joe Biden is going to pitch black voters. I, I swear, that's what the headline says on Bidenomics. Does race matter there? Or is, it, is, he, is he seeing that he's losing some ground because folks ain't feeling real good about their pocketbooks, including black Americans? It doesn't know anything about race. <laughs> it's, economics is not racial. They want to make it that way because, as we've stated so many times, it's gender, climate, and race. That's the essence of the Democrat Party. Identify, group, categorize. It's how they roll. It's straight out of the Marxist playbook. They hate it when you try to call attention to that and make that comparison. But it's true. It's absolutely true. That's the central theme, the goal of Marxism. The oppressed and the oppressors. The theory is the oppressors rise up. Pardon me, the oppressed. The oppressed rise up. And they just sort of reimagine the government. That's what they want. Oh, my gosh. So they, honestly, they, uh, they engender the segregation. It's Michelle Wu having, don't you see it? Her electeds of color, Christmas, what a Christmas party. Oh my gosh, we can't recognize Christmas. A holiday gathering, whatever the hell she called it. Same deal. It's all these numerous universities that have separate graduations depending on your race or your gender or whatever way they categorize people. It's incredible. But I thought we had to restore the soul of the nation. Remember, that was the slogan during the 20 campaign. Restoring the soul of the nation. We've got to elect Joe Biden. He'll unite us. How's that going, Joe? <laughs> He's united so much, you're going to make a speech <laughs> to promote Bidenomics to just black people. How uniting is that? I told you, DEI, right? Discrimination, exclusion. <laughs> There you go, another DEI-themed event that's excluding everybody that doesn't fit into their little tidy box. We're coming right back. Final segment of Hour 2 of Middays, and then Don McVeigh at 12.05. It's so awesome! Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show! On Super Talk Mississippi.
We're back in the Element Well studio. The Dow has turned positive. It was negative earlier today. Trying to find some direction there. It's had a good run. The NASDAQ also in the positive in green territory. Ten-year yield down today. It's now at 3.895 below 4%. That's good news for mortgage rates and and, uh, credit card uh, interest rates, etc. So we'll see where that goes. Um, I'm I'm optimistic, always am, about uh, the future of the market. I think next year is going to be a good one. I think we're going to see some rate cuts. I think they could do it now, honestly. And I think we're going to con- continue to see this explosion of artificial intelligence uh, drive markets uh, positively. I think we're just really getting started with all that. I think it's good news. Darren and Jackson said, makes you wonder about the people who elected this school board president in Pennsylvania. I agree, Darren, and that's, that's what we should take away from this. This, If you didn't hear it, folks, there's a school board president in the Central Bucks School District who took her oath, sworn in with a hand on a stack of books that uh, did not include the Bible, by the way, but... Books with sexually explicit content. Crazy. And uh, books that you don't want school children reading, but yet are available often in these libraries. And folks have to be vigilant about this to ensure that such content, such books and materials are not available. Because they are inappropriate. Of course, this is where the left goes crazy on Ron DeSantis when he signed off on legislation that bans these sexually explicit books, doesn't allow <coughs> discussion of sexual orientation and, and uh, thorny sexual content to youngsters. We shouldn't. It's unnecessary. It's I think destructive, honestly, and too intense. It's, I mean, as a society, I think we should we should take stock of such inappropriate content. Man, let the kids be kids. Turns out that there's another school district in Virginia. Man, it seems like Fairfax County, Virginia, has just been the epicenter of all this craziness in the schools. Democrat Carl Frisch sworn in for his second term on the Fairfax School Board with a stack of books that have been banned in other school systems, not in Fairfax County, mind you, again for sexually controversial content. He was sworn in on a stack of five LGBTQ-themed books most frequently banned by other school systems according to his campaign website. Why are you so proud of that? Did you got to go put that on your campaign website? Because it's their holy texts. Oh, gosh. Well, it turns out that to, to, to witness and to administer the oath was his partner. How about that? Male partner held the stack of books as he was sworn in. The books included 
all boys aren't blue. One of the ones that was also part of the stack of the female who got sworn in in Pennsylvania. Genderqueer, flamer, oh yeah, lawn boy, and the perks of being a wallflower. I'm sure that's just riveting. I kid you not. I think you, they made a movie about that last one. I think you're right. I don't think it did very well, but I think they made a movie about it. Uh, the, there's a video that you could go view. I know you have an interest in that. And I'm looking at a still photo from the video with uh, Fritch and his partner administering the oath. Wearing a robe, of course, administering the oath. And I see this stack of books. And, of course, it's pretty clear that the Bible is not present. But yet there is, uh, as we just listed, a stack of these these uh, works that deal with LGBTQ content. Unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Ceremony af- appears to be part of a trend in the country where officials are being sworn in on sexually explicit books that are banned by other school districts. Do they really think this is the kind of stuff that young kids should be reading? They don't understand what the word oath means. Because the second they get caught in a lie or doing something untowards, they are discrediting everything they put their hand on. That's true. That's the whole point of an oath. That that is true. Well, we're going to take a break right here. It's time for Fox News and uh, Super Talk News. When we come back, it's Don McVeigh, National Federation of Independent Small Business for Mississippi and Louisiana Director. Stay with us. Welcome to the show that challenges you to think deeply deeply. and look beyond political posturing. You're listening to Middays with Gerard Gibbert here on Super Talk Mississippi. Three, the afternoon portion of Middays is live on this. Hump day. And we welcome to Middays Don McVeigh, National Federation of Independent Small Business, Mississippi and Louisiana. Director Don, good to see you again. How's it going? Good afternoon. How are you guys? We're doing great. Thanks for calling in. Appreciate you joining us. We thought it made sense to get an update from you as we are right in the throes of the busy retail season, for sure. Most retailers rely on uh, the busy Christmas shopping season, honestly, to, to hit their numbers, to make, uh, to make ends meet. Uh, you know, there are a lot of businesses, the vast majority of their sales occur uh, during the Christmas shopping season. What are you hearing from your members? Well, you know, it's been a tough time. I wish I had better news to report, but, you know, some folks are experiencing, you know, in certain areas of the state, obviously, are busier and more populated than others. But it had it wasn't as 
like Small Business Saturday was just not as strong as it had been in the past. Um, some of the indicators are early indicators. Of course, the holiday season is not open, uh, over. You know, we've got a lot a lot of time left. What? Yeah six days or something so, yeah, that's right. um you know we've yeah we've got we've got to, we've got to get through the end of the year but things haven't been as great um really have impacted by fewer uh people in the stores we've heard uh so that's been interesting i don't know if people are just sticking to online shopping this year or what but um we just like to remind people that a lot of small business owners still have online uh, shopping available they they did that during covid and have kept that up and so um don't always just turn to your big box online check yeah. out your local retailer because if you don't want to get out and about there's still opportunity to shop online locally and support your local folks. Well, I'll admit I'm one of those late shoppers, so uh, there'll there'll be some business coming the way of the stores that that um, I'll patronize <laughs> here locally between now and Christmas. So I'm uh, I'm always behind Good. on that, but I always come through. Good. Just make there's sure always you're, there's always one of you, right? That's Running right. Around loose. That's right. <laughs> so to to what do you attribute? Is this just general macroeconomic conditions? Uh, pe- people. Uh, uh, just have less disposable income, and and thus they're maybe tapering back a little bit. Is that what you think is going on? It's, you know, I think it's still inflation. You know, we have um, we have a lot of business owners telling us it's still still impacting their day to day of keeping their doors open. So uh, it's definitely affecting you know the everyday Mississippian you know and their ability to go out and shop. And so. Yeah. Uh, we see our businesses are reporting they're they're still experiencing higher rents, uh, you know, for wherever they might be renting their location. Yeah. You know, higher cost of uh, deliveries and um, and of course prices and gas have gone up and down. You know, we I think we're on the downtrend right now, but you know they they were higher uh, over the summer. Uh, as they usually are, but still, you know, on top of inflation. So this whole year has been, they haven't really been able to get out of the net negative feeling of, of things. And so really we've just seen a lot of, a lot of folks also telling us that they're raising uh, labor costs, yeah. the, the rising labor costs, that they are increasing their wages. Uh, we've got 30% of small business owners reporting that they plan to raise wages in the next three months, which mm. is really great to hear, um, but that does affect the cost of goods and services, right? At some point, you have to balance that bottom line like we always talk about. Yeah. Is it? Is there still, uh, from what you're hearing uh, from your members, uh, a problem getting labor, still constrained field yeah. of labor? Yeah. Definitely still a strain on that. Uh, openings, 40% of small business owners in the past, in the November survey that we just recently took, you know, reported that they had openings that they couldn't fill. So yeah. that meant that either they didn't have participation or what have you. And, you know, Mississippi is a, is a, is a great, uh, a great, unfortunately, a great indicator of the problem with labor participation. You know, um, the South, uh, Louisiana and Mississippi, Alabama also has a pretty high labor um, along this little, our little section of the South, pretty high, uh, ranks high in the labor participation, meaning that we don't have good labor right. participation. <laughs> right. um, so it's, yeah, so it's really frustrating. So we, we really got to figure out as a state, you know, what, 
how, how do we address that? Because um, ranking on the bad on the bad list, you know, is not a good thing on, right. when it comes to that because it doesn't affect the ability for people to find qualified workers. Well, the jobs are there, as you know, they're available. You're hearing it from your members. They're yeah. they're, they're seeking uh, workers right. for a cross section of jobs. I mean, I don't think there's any industry yeah. that honestly that isn't. So it, it kind of sounds like, Dawn, that we, we just don't have a good match with, with the skills of our, of our workers that are on the sidelines to fill these jobs. And I know that's why this state, at least, has, has put in a lot of effort and uh, created programs and resources to uh, improve that situation, to equip our workers with these skills uh, that satisfy the needs of employers. Uh, to try to to get those we, folks into the workforce, we really have done a lot in Mississippi, and it's great. It's you know great to see, and I think it's you know coming into this new term. There's a lot of things that we would like to see maybe get get moved on, and um and you know, and I think there's a lot of opportunity with some new legislators, and yeah, uh, you know. The governor's done an amazing job the past four years and, you know, some new leadership. And so we're we're really excited about it because there are some things that could really help small business owners. And uh, I think continuing down the road, we've started uh, in Mississippi as it relates to workforce and, and getting that addressed. And then, of course, there's just bigger systemic things that over time have to be fixed as it relates to labor participation. So I don't think that's a well, one and done, you know, yeah. one piece of legislation can fix that. But um, the fact that we're talking about it more, I think, is really important. Agree. And I, and I know the governor's aware, and he's focused on it as well. I've, yeah. I've personally talked to him about it. And members of our legislature, our statewide leaders, are they're keenly aware of this issue. And our lieutenant governor in particular focuses on it uh, quite a bit. So speaking of yeah. which, we got a new session that's getting underway in less than two weeks, two weeks from yesterday. <laughs> Hard to believe here in Mississippi. What are your legislative priorities? What are you guys going to be working on? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we were really excited to see uh, some recent comments by uh, Speaker-designee White that, you know, he'll be interested to see continued work on the elimination of the income tax. I think that, you know, that has obviously been a priority of ours since it became um, an opportunity and Mm -hmm. the state is experiencing significant surpluses. And so we need to be sure we're both looking at, you know, how do we ensure that the state doesn't get in a bad position on the budget, but also, you know, find ways to uh, to reduce, further reduce the income tax and, and move to elimination. You know, states are looking at it. It's become such a competitive situation uh, in so many states in our, that are neighboring. Uh, of course, Texas doesn't have one, but Arkansas just went into a special session a few months ago to put a big chunk of their surplus away so that they could work on buying down their in, their income tax rate. Yeah. So, and, you know, Louisiana, my home state, God bless us. We get a new governor come January, (laughs) and uh, I think everybody's really excited about what he is going to maybe do, uh, hopefully, uh, do for the state to really, really kick us into gear because we are lagging way behind our neighbors. So, um, so yeah, so the income tax piece for Mississippi is exciting uh, to continue to see that conversation being had. Uh, You know, some other things that just don't really come up to people's minds every day, but was something we're working on in D.C. and we really have been working on at the state level um, here here and there, but it's really removing the sales tax component of a bill at, take your local restaurant, uh, your bill, 
uh, your final bill at the end of the day is what a business owner pays a credit card processing fee on. Yep. What we're wanting to really do is really look at what opportunities we have to remove the swipe. It's called a swipe fee. Yep. But for any business that takes that any takes that it takes that credit card, they're paying that processing fee. And look, you gotta you gotta do that. You gotta pay the fee to do that. But these fees are getting so out of control. We have uh, one small restaurant. Tor who told us, you know, the bottom line that he has to pay every year is like $70,000. And that is significant to a one, one, you know, one location, small restaurant. And so talking about swipe fees more is something we hope to do in the coming okay. session to really educate legislators on what's going on and how this is impacting small businesses, because it really hits them harder than, um, you know, than your, than your big guys. Yeah. Um, and drug okay. pricing transparency and the PBMs, we, uh, you and I, I think talked about yeah. it early on yeah. in the year. Okay. Um, that continues to be a challenge. So yep. we're, we'll be interested to see if there's I think, a good conversation around uh, I know that, that issue is going to get some attention in the upcoming session. But, Don, yes. we appreciate you joining us and providing an update. hope you have the merriest of Christmases and a happy new year. I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Always good talking to you. Thanks. Absolutely. Thank you all. We're coming right back, folks, in the Element Well studio. Talk that keeps Mississippi talking. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Let's get on with it. On Super Talk Mississippi. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pout. I'm telling you why. Santa Claus is coming to town. He's making a list and checking it twice. He's gonna find out who's naughty and nice. Santa Claus is coming to town. <laughs> he sees you when you're sleeping. Oh, he blue knows eyes. When you're awake. <laughs> he knows if you've been bad or good, so be good. There you go. On the ceasefire text line, I said, uh, earlier that I was optimistic about uh, the markets. We gave an update. The Dow had went from negative to positive. <clears throat> and I just think that the markets are going to be powered by first accommodating monetary policy. I, I think um, I don't think the Fed has totally whipped inflation, but I think it is poised now to start moderating rates. Now let's be clear. If you start seeing the Fed reduce rates swiftly and in large amounts, that's a problem. That means the economy is turning really negative. So there's a fine line there. Uh, Big-time pullback on the rates means that the Fed is trying to induce economic activity by lowering uh, financing costs, essentially. Um, and then, because remember, that's the rate that banks borrow from the from each other from it's the way that works and and that's what the Fed funds rate is so and that of course it, it drives the cost to, to consumers consumer lending rates and business lending rates as well all based on that 
They're, it's their cost of money. It's essentially like if you think about buying inventory. The banks buy money, if you will, and then they sell money. That really was what banking is. And they buy it at one price and sell it at another. And the, and the difference is what they call the spread, the margin that they make on that. No different than buying a, a product for one price as a retailer and selling it uh, to consumers at, at a, hopefully a price above what you bought it for to make a profit. Same deal. So on the ceasefire text line, you think the market is going to be better in 2024 due to people seeing the light at the end of the tunnel that Biden's term could be coming to an end, Freddie from Fannin. No, I really don't think, honestly, at all, Freddie. I know what you're saying, but I don't think that's figuring into sentiments of investors. If that were the case, uh, I don't think we would have seen such a strong year in the markets this year. Uh, it, it totally is based on the expectation that the Fed is going to pull back on rates, and that's because we've gotten fairly benign inflation reports of late that shows that inflation is moderating and still increasing. This is what Joe Biden doesn't get. It's still going up, just not at the same rate. Uh, so that's considered good news from for the Fed. Kind of gives them cover to pull back on rates. Uh, it's that. Plus, honestly, it's innovation. It's it's artificial intelligence. It's the this, the internet dot com boom of the '90s being repeated and manifested. Uh, except in this case, it's artificial intelligence. There's no doubt that is driving a lot of what we see in the markets from a positive perspective, and not just technology producers of artificial intelligence, but businesses really across the industry spectrum benefiting from implementation of the technology. There's not a major corporation out there that doesn't have a major effort underway right now, projects commissioned, funded, to implement artificial intelligence in their business. I mean, and when I say it's a spectrum of industries, it's in ways you, you just don't think about. And I'm not talking about just plain old generative AI where you supply a prompt to one of these generative AI tools and it writes you some text up, provides some content in return. I'm talking way beyond that. In pharmaceuticals, in medicine, for example. Big time. All good stuff, honestly. And I think it is. Uh, we're going to see more and more AI being incorporated into uh, pharmaceuticals, into therapies, into cures, diagnostics, all the above. No doubt about it. Financial. I mean, if you if you really oversimplify medicine, it is pattern recognition of historical evidence of how the human body reacts to certain stimuli, whether it be internal or external. So, with AI being all about pattern recognition, yeah, you can throw so much more data at it than you can a, an educated person like a doctor, and it can find patterns that would take eons for a human to draw, connect the dots. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the size of the sample necessary to produce a valid statistical metric... Doing that th traditionally, 
using traditional tools takes orders of magnitude longer, to your point, than uh, AI-powered technology could do. could filter through mountains, reams of data in a very short period of time. So we've got that revolution going on concurrently with uh, something you and I have talked to offline, quantum computing. So when you combine AI and, and, and it being powered by quantum future computers, not today, because today it's pretty much these GPUs and NVIDIA and, and now Intel, you've seen it has announced a complete new line of, of uh, chips that are, um, that are specific to powering AI applications that are tailored for that purpose. I, I saw a great interview with the CEO of, of Intel last week talking about it, and their stock immediately, boom, bounced up, trended upward, because it's like, okay, we're playing, and this is how we're going to play. Now, they got lots of resources, lots of capabilities and assets to do so, and people have been kind of investors in the industry, scratching their heads. Where's Intel in this deal? Household semiconductor name. Why are they letting NVIDIA eat their lunch. Well, they're coming to the table now. So that's good news. I mean, that drives more innovation, competition, and it, and it gets it to market faster. So I think that's driving it, um, and you're going to see more of that. And again, this moderating inflation. I mean, the political realm and how that affects markets, what markets like more than anything is that they can do nothing. Again, uh, uh, playing on this concept of faith, confidence, and certainty. That's what drives investment, expansion, hiring. When you got divided government, if you will, you got a White House under, in this case, Democrat control, and at least the House of Representatives under Republican control, you can't get anything through. So that's when they turn to these goofy executive orders, and we just hope they keep that in check. Now, what could challenge market growth? is the ridiculous deficits that we're creating. And why is that? Because the deficits require printing of money to pay the bills. You spend more than you got. So every time you see these politicians bragging about, I don't care what it is they're spending, and how much that may benefit a community or a group or a person, just remember, they're printing money to do it. I submit there's nothing virtuous or noble about that. Nothing creative about that. Creative is when you figure out how to get good things done and spend within your means. That's hard. Just spending money you don't have, that ain't hard. You can dream up anything. Well, why is that a problem for the economy? Because it's inflationary. You're just boosting the money supply. So it's more money chasing fewer goods. And in this case, it's government a lot of times buying stuff. Or, or sending payments out, or issuing all these goofy credits for chip manufacturers and, and uh, all the Green New Deal stuff, subsidies, etc. So that's kind of what I think is going to happen there. So I also had um, someone that texted in, I believe, for the first time, and, and appreciate the engagement. I was listening to your show about the 13th check. As a retired teacher, I feel you need to be educated to the facts. One, one you talked about teachers retired Beforeing, I'm trying to read through it here, 1987. Those teachers worked for more than 20 years for low pay. That 13th check is one of the benefits of teaching in Mississippi. Teachers do not work an 8 to 5 job, and I challenge anyone to go volunteer in your public schools to see how hard teachers work. Well, um, and so I, I'm not sure if you caught uh, my discussion about how the 13th check 
is calculated and why it's higher than the service benefit for folks that, that retired a whole long time ago. Um, but I, And I'll discuss that on the other side of the break. I think we are just need to clarify what uh, was said here uh, on the show about that. Uh, the way you described it is is not exactly the way that uh, I discussed it. But we'll, we'll clarify that on the other side of the break, as we said. we got half an hour left here on Middays in the Element Well studio with a little Mannheim steamroller. I think that was the great Rush Limbaugh's favorite, as I recall. Thank you for that, Rhino. Coming right back. With Gerard Gibbert on Super Talk Mississippi. That's the Ray Khan of Singers there. That's my favorite, by the way. Harkens back to my childhood. My mother loved that that group, the Ray Khan of Singers. I think they made a couple of Christmas albums, right? Uh, the, oh, yeah. Yeah, the one we listen to regularly is We Wish You a Merry Christmas. I think it had a photo of the group dressed up like Santa Claus is on the front, as I recall. I still enjoy it today, by the way, just so you'll know. Appreciate that, Rhino. So um, our listener here that texted in about the uh, per, about PERS and specifically the 13th check, and again, just wanted to clarify. Uh, first, let me set the record straight. My daughter's a teacher, and, and so I fully understand what it's like to be a teacher. She teaches here at the public schools. Um, she just changed jobs back in the summer. She now works for Secretary of State uh, Michael Watson. But for nine years, she was a teacher in the Madison County School District. So um, I, I certainly there, – there was no feeling on, my, on our part or really no discussion about the work of teachers and the sacrifices they make and the value they are to society. I will also say, however, though, it ain't just teachers. There are a lot of people that contribute every day to society. Teachers are certainly among those. Now, we could debate till the cows come home about how much anyone should be compensated, which is why the only fair arbiter of pay is the market. So the market's the market. And as much as I respect and as grateful as I am to teachers, including my own flesh and blood daughter, I told her before she did it, you ain't going to make any money. You understand that. She did, but it was a calling. And I know it is. I know they don't do it for the money. I appreciate that. I'm just trying to expose the math problem that Purse has. That's all. And if I hope this person, I'll send him a link, reads my article. 
I don't say anything about whether anybody deserves or doesn't the benefits. That's not the question. The question is, how do we pay for what we're obligated to, to satisfy? That's the question. That's what the legislature and the PERS board have to deal with. They know it. That's the question. It's just math. And that's all I tried to do was expose the math. And, and I did, I feel adequately, Rhino, and you listen, I do feel like that. I explained that, yeah, if you retired a long time ago, your service benefit, your base benefit, was based on your pay at that time. That's the way it works. You're what they call the high four. Your high four years of, of compensation as an active member contributing into PERS, that's a, a, a main figure used to compute your base benefit. And because it is a defined benefit plan, and thus it pays benefits for life, an extra component of it is, which is typical of any defined benefit plans, including our own Social Security, is a cost-of-living adjustment. The issue with PERS cost-of-living adjustment is it adjusts and and pays uh, a benefit for to, to account for the cost-of-living, whether the cost-of-living went up or not. It's just 3% of those years a person retired before the age of 60, and 3% compounded after. Whether that corresponds with the actual increase in the cost of living or not. It's not tied to that. It's just a formula that says 3% before 60, 3% compounded after. Regardless, if the cost of living went down, if we experienced deflation, the cost of living adjustment in Mississippi's purse still goes up. So it's really kind of improperly named, honestly, because it's really not a cost-of-living adjustment. It's just a, it's just extra money that comes at you every year based on a formula. And that formula is not tied to the cost-of-living. Social Security, on the other hand, is, just, just for comparison's sakes. So, again, I'm just explaining the math. And I, I'm not advocating for anything that would change the current benefits uh, whatsoever. That's a problem the legislature's got to solve. I laid it out in an article and said, God, here's your choices, and it bears repeating. I know I've said it so many times, people are sick of hearing it. Really, three things you can do. Got to get more revenue in, pay less out, or a combination of the two. Start working. And and they're going to take that up. I'm confident they are. We've talked to too many that are, and I've talked to high-level leadership in the state as well, and I can't predict where that's going to land. But those are really the choices. It's, it's not hard. It's a math problem. It just is. My niece is a teacher, and it's not that hard on the ceasefire tax line. Well, I mean, again, hard is subjective, right? I, I know teachers, you've heard this, that have, unfortunately, have classrooms full of kids, who don't have really good home lives, and it's a pain in the butt. I've watched parents, I've seen communication for parents to my daughter that's ridiculous, honestly. And you know what they're trying to do. Blame them for their problems. That's all that's about. Because they're 
stupid government has been telling people this on the left. We've lost the idea. We've, we've shifted dramatically away, you, you said it earlier today, of the concept of individual responsibility. No, no, no. Everything bad in your life is somebody else's fault. You're just oppressed. It's those oppressors. It's Marxism. It just is. People may be saying, Gerard, you're crazy. That's hyperbole. No, it's not. Can't you see it? Everything is somebody else's fault. And that's, that's what they preach. So I'm, I'm not in a position to judge how difficult or easy the work is whatsoever. And that's not even the point. It's really not. It is what it is. The point is, there's a math problem that's got to be solved. And, and by the way, it's not just teachers. I mean, I know that represents most of our public sector workers in the program, but there are lots of other public sector workers as, as well that, of course, participate uh, in PERS. And um, I know some folks are now asking, uh, George from Madison County, your article link. I want to read your ideas. I'm a state retiree, and we have long-term dollar issues with PERS. Yeah, I'll send it to you, George, but just so everybody will know, you can find it at Supertalk. Uh, Let's see, was it supertalk.fm is the URL, and uh, all you got, or you could just go Google Supertalk Purs, boom, it comes right up. I think it's at the top of the search results there, and, and it um, it's gotten lots of lots of clicks, lots of reads. You know, we we track that stuff here, and all I was trying to do is put the problem on the table and offer some suggestions. And I don't honestly think I suggested anything they don't already know. I just said it. I think that's fair to say, Rhino. They they know. I just I just articulated it. That's all I did, so that it can kind of stimulate the discussion. And I don't have a dog in the hunt. And the the text, not to pile on the texture or anything, but the, that text is a perfect example of why this has not been brought up, why this has not been talked about. Because even having a rational conversation about it brings out irrational anger from some people because they feel like you're not understanding what they've put into it or you're you're detracting from their work or you're trying to take something away from them and it's like no this is just a conversation about issues we are currently facing that will only get worse if nothing is done and that's the point and so i think to kind of summarize what you said there there's the human element of this and then there's the math I'm just focused on the math. I, I, I mean, anything you would say about the human element is subjective. Because I know we got Thomas, of course, he's sitting here saying, you know, teachers don't work hard. They get from 6 to 9, then 11, 4. I'm going to tell you, Thomas, I, I can't tell you, that is not the case. I've witnessed that with my daughter. If you think they just work during that period of time they're in that classroom, that is not true whatsoever. Um, you got people's kids. You get bugged a lot, as you can imagine. Now, again, that's subjective, and that's not what I'm talking about. It's not about that. It's about the math. That's objective. The, the, um, the difficulty of any job, subjective. The math, objective. I'm just focused on the objective facts here. And I feel certain if there were... Rhino were flaws in what I said in the article. I feel certain somebody would have told me. It's been out there a month. Because you know they've all read it. In, in fact, I mean the purse people, they've read it. They just said, no, you got that wrong. And, and that's fine. I want to make sure we get the data right. But it was done with research 
of their data. I just kind of summarized that. And a lot of other sources as well that you'll see featured in the article. But, I mean, the the vast majority of it was sourced from PERS. So, um, again, I'm calling attention to it because I want to solve the problem. That's it. Period. Just want to solve the problem. Nat King Cole, that is so smooth, so fantastic. Final segment on Middays coming up. Super Talk Mississippi. Middays with Gerard Gibbert. Come on, let's get on with the show. On Super Talk Mississippi. That's so good. The Ray Conniff singers there. Appreciate that, Rhino. That, uh, that's my favorite rendition of Oh Holy Night, which is just a great song, the lyrics, I think, to truly celebrate and project the spirit of Christmas. Teaching is a hard job when done correctly, exclamation point. I have taught for 25 years the public school district. Contracts run around 120 days, double that, and it's full year, double my salary, and I would be making well over 100000 It's all in how you choose to look at it. PERS is what we've paid in. I hope they fix it and doesn't mess up retirement for the many that have served our children for years. Let me be clear again. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that there's a math problem. I can't seem to get that through. I hear you. I agree. And I'm not trying to be um, antagonistic or confrontational here. But what I am saying is, if action isn't taken, it ain't going to be around. That's the problem. And it's going to be expensive. And most of the action taken from a financial perspective is going to fall on the taxpayers. That's just a fact. It does now. It is primarily funded by taxpayers, not the employees who pay in. And in fact, if you went, and I did this exercise, if you went backwards and you look at the history of the increase in the employee contribution, if we'd have done that, if we'd have had the employees paying what they're paying now, going back 25 or so years ago, we wouldn't have a problem as a percentage of their pay. And there were some decisions made, and I talk about this in the article back in the 90s, that kind of set the program on this path to instability. And it's going to cost money to fix it. That's all I'm saying. And as Rhino said, the sooner you do it, the less it will cost. It's the same thing as Social Security, and it's why I get frustrated with folks on the left and at the national level who absolutely excoriate anyone who even mentions the idea of trying to address the 
unfunded liabilities situation of Social Security and Medicare, even Donald Trump himself says, don't touch it. Okay, well then it's going to fold. It's going to crash. And I get it. It's because it's politically unpopular. Which is why we need people who are willing to do the unpopular things, even if it costs them the next election. How many of those are there out there? How many is running for office that say, I just want to go in and do the stuff that's hard, even if it means I won't win re-election, I'll go home, but I'll have done the right thing. Even saying that pretty much guarantees you can't get elected. Thus, proper action isn't taken. That's what we're looking at here. Just wanted to point that out. PERS retirement income is also pumped back into the Mississippi economy. Heaven forbid the lowest paid teachers in the country should have a decent retirement. So again, it's, I think the point's being missing. Uh, and I've seen gazillions of analysis on that exact point. Uh, even down to the county level, the, the economic impact of benefits. But it's taking money out of one pocket, putting it in another to put it back in the economy. It's just circulating it. Um, and, and yeah, that point could be argued, but that doesn't change the fact that it's not going to be able to, at some point, pay benefits unless more money, revenue, comes into the system, either in the form of investment returns or revenue from employee-employer contributions or infusion of cash from the state or all the above, which is what we discussed in the article. And, the, and that's the point. So it's not, it's not about the, um, I guess, the merit of the system and the deservability of, uh, of the folks that participate in it. That's not the issue. The issue is a math one. Gosh, I'm sorry to be beating that drum, but I, I, I feel like it's the same thing that's happening at the federal level, which is why we're dead gum running $2 trillion deficits every year. Because it's a math problem. If people won't just focus on the math. Folks at the federal level, they start talking about that. And, man, the left says, they want to cut this. They want to cut that. They want to cut this. Okay, well, then $2 trillion deficits is the alternative. And they run for office, and and, um, they get pointed out for that. They get outed. And all they're trying to do, and that's all we're trying to do here, man, I just want to see the thing get fixed so that your benefits are good to go. That's the big thing is that uh, the program is sustainable for the long term, and those that have worked and paid into it, expecting those benefits to be there, are there, period. Unlike the federal government, we can't just print money. State can't print money to cover its expenses. Of course, that's inflationary. State can't do that. It's got to have real hard cash. We're out of here today. We're down at Carter Jewelers tomorrow and Friday. Hope you'll join us. Until then, stay safe and God bless everyone. A Super Talk Mississippi media production.